I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. It's Le Mans week at long last. This year's 24-hour race should have happened in June like normal, but it got delayed because you know why. Uh, Finally, though, the 2020-24 hours of Le Mans is upon us. Um, It'll be a slightly odd one, Andrew. Uh, There won't be any spectators. Uh, We're looking at what looks like a fairly depleted field. There's only one factory team in LMP1. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were talking just before we started recording, um, and you said it's the only upside, I suppose, is that if ever there was a year to miss, this is the one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm gutted. Um, you know, I, like you, have gone, you know, pretty much every year. Uh, I mean, for me, you know, going back years and years and years, um, and. To me, it's just it's just one of the things that um, that you do and, and, and that you couldn't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine missing the Goodwood Revival and I can't imagine missing Le Mans. And this year, um, OK, Goodwood got Speed Week, which I look forward to hugely. Um, but to not go to Le Mans, um, you know, is is, is, is just for, for me, it, it, it is just bizarre. And yeah, you are right. I guess, um, you know, if there was a year to miss, this is probably it because LMP1 is looking very thin. GT Pro, which is usually the... Frankly, it's a category that I, I, I enjoy most. Um, and, you know, in recently years, you know, in, on top of the, you know, the Porsches and the Ferraris and the Astons, there have been Fords and BMWs and Corvettes. Well, you know, the Fords, the BMWs and the Corvettes aren't going to be there this year. So, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, it's, it's going to be a really thin year. So, you know, move on. On the other hand, I just love being at Le Mans. I just love <laughs> being at that track. I just, there's nothing about, being there that I don't like it's just it's just the most I mean I'm sure almost everybody listening to this has will have been but if you haven't um you know just it it is a race unlike any other the atmosphere is extraordinary the track is amazing and 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 to me as you know some 
old bore who's so massively into you know the history of motor racing you know the the, the heritage that everything that you know has gone on at that track over the last whatever it is um nearly a hundred years actually 1923 was the first and okay there was a big break in the middle for a, a global conflict but um yeah i just love it i just love it all and i can't believe we're not going okay before we get really stuck into uh, this episode what's your sort of in a nutshell your favorite way of doing le mans uh, my favourite way of doing it is, is just watching motor racing. I think that what people and everybody's different, and I'm not saying my way is right and anybody else's way is wrong. But um, you know, you, you, I've never heard anyone come back from the moor and go, "Oh, I wish I wa- I'd watched less racing. I wish I'd spent more time, um, you know, getting pissed with my mates." Um, I mean, the great thing is, is because it's such a long race, and because you tend to get there a bit before anyway, there are so many opportunities to do those things. Um, for me, the best, for me, the single best thing about Le Mans is being at the Porsche curves at dawn. I do it every year, um, usually on my own because I can't find anybody else stupid enough to want to walk that far. Um, but as the sun is coming up to see those cars already battle worn after, um, you know, more than a dozen hours of racing and knowing that they still got, you know, 10, 11 hours still to go um you can get pretty close to the track uh the cars are traveling at enormous speed there particularly the prototypes to watch them change direction um there's nobody around because everybody is either you know face down in a ditch somewhere or still drinking um and yeah it's it's a it's a very personal intimate moment you can just be there almost on your own with the cars in the stella the cars are flying because it's quite cool uh, and so the engine, the turbo engines love that. And it, it, it is, to me, it is a completely magical moment. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love it. What about you? Oh, well, do you know, listening, listening to you describe it that way, um, I'd be really excited now if we were jumping in a car in a couple of days and heading down to Le Mans. But we're not. We're, <laughs> we're, you know, <laughs> at best, we'll, we'll watch it from home, maybe listen on the radio or something. And yeah, they just just feels a little bit melancholy hearing you describe it and knowing that it's not going to happen that way this year. Um, But yeah, so I've done it a few different ways, actually. Um, I think we'll come back to this a little bit later on. But I just, yeah, I sort of agree with you. I I just love the atmosphere. um, And I love finding a great place to watch the cars. You know, that that's the, the most exciting thing about it, where you really get that impression of speed and direction change. Um, that that's what it's all about, particularly when the sun's going down or coming up. Um, yeah, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, all right, well, let's sort of let's rewind a little bit. Um, we are going to preview this year's race um, quite briefly because, well, as we'll discover, it doesn't seem to be poised to be uh, an epic, a memorable one. But the thing is, you do know, you you, you never know, do you? Yeah, I mean, exactly. So many utterly implausible things have happened at that race, so. Um, yeah, so let's not write it off, and I, I, I will be glued to it. Um, I don't even know whether it's on telly or whether I have to watch the live stream. It doesn't really matter. Um, I, I will be glued to it, but yeah. Um, sorry, I completely interrupted you, didn't I? Yeah, go okay. on. Yes, so, so we're, we're going to preview the race. <laughs> so we're going to preview it briefly, but we're also going to talk about the race more broadly and the history of it, and you know the romance of it, and some of our favourite memories. So this isn't necessarily a preview episode, but I think we should look ahead to this weekend's race anyway. Um, so the, the headlining category, LMP1, I guess one of the frustrations um, with this year's race is that there are only two hybrid um, manufacturer cars there, the, the two Toyotas, 
Um, and there are some very, very good other runners, some privateer runners uh, in the LMP1 category, Baikalers Racing and Rebellion Racing. But historically, they haven't been able to compete with the, the factory hybrids. Um, so, that, that, I, you know, unless the Toyotas trip over one another or something, we're looking at another Toyota win. I suspect, who knows, I might be uh, eating my words a few days from now. Um, I think one of the other frustrations with the LMP1 race this year is that it's the last year of that category and we're all looking forward to the hypercar rules coming in um, from 2021 onwards, which, well, they sound really promising. And it looks like there's going to be some good manufacturer support for that class as well, Peugeot and Toyota. Unfortunately, the Valkyrie, the Aston Martin Valkyrie that we were promised would race in the hypercar category, uh, it's been delayed or... Actually, as I suspect, it's not going to happen. I, I don't. Do you have a view on that one? Do you think that car um, racing in in at Le Mans is done? I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I th- I, I, I think all bets are off now that Aston Martin's under new management. Um, you know, who knows um, what Tobias Merz is going to um, is going to want to do? I mean, I think instinctively he is going to want to race. Um, you know he he is very much cut from that cloth uh, and if you look at all the uh, the gt racing that amg did under his watch um in gt3 and gt4 um you know so i can't imagine him not wanting astons out there but of course astons have always been so well represented represented in, particularly in gt pro so so we we come down to the old equation don't we um whether you know you go for an outright win um which means you've got to have you know something to contest the very top category um based on a very rarefied hypercar like a valkyrie or whether you actually take a more commercial view and think actually we want to go racing with something we can um which looks like what we actually go um and sell and you know and the interesting case in point here is um is bentley because bentley have always said that they've never entered a race they didn't have a chance of winning outright which is why i guess bentley never has never done a um a gt pro car um you know and so they you know they famously they came and won it in 2003 with a pure prototype now i you know i wonder whether you know that's something that they're going to want to pursue going forward um but you know aston martin i th- I, th- I think we just have to wait and see what um which way Mers goes with it. Um, I mean, it may well be that, in fact, what he really wants to do is go racing with the new Vanquish, um, as and when that becomes available, because, you know, that will be, you know, the mid-engine car on which so much of Aston Martin's future uh, lies uh, and, and which will be a sort of standard production model. That's a, that's a very interesting point. Um, so b- back to this year's race. The other bit of interest in the LMP1 category is that Janetta is racing uh, with one car, with um, a certain Guy Smith in it, um bentley boy from 2003 um so you know there's a bit of british interest in there at the very least um lmp2 i mean there are plenty of cars racing in that category and it'll be hard fought and there's some very very good drivers in there um lmp2 is always worth keeping an eye on i of course will be supporting alpine uh, because i'm <laughs> sort of a duty bound to do so they won last year and the year before so i reckon that's they're a good shout for for the you know the top spot uh, this time around. But typically, the the battle that's really worth keeping an eye on is the GTE Pro um, race, 
Uh, you, you've already mentioned it a few minutes ago, Andrew. Sadly, it's not going to be quite as packed as it has been in the past. Well, it was only a couple of years ago, wasn't it? We had six manufacturer teams in there. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so now we've only got three. Um, it is it's Aston Martin, Porsche, and Ferrari, as you've said. Um, but you know, at least they're going to be going at it, hammer and tongs, aren't they? Yeah, and they always do. And also, you know, don't forget the quality of the drivers in that category. Um, you know, the, these guys don't mess about. Um, and you know. Uh, most of the drivers who compete for works manufacturers in GT Pro have either already had significant careers um, in prototypes or are more than capable of having significant careers in prototypes. So, you know, you've got the best drivers um, out there. And and some of the um, the battles that we have seen, uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was that Johnny Adam won in the Aston Martin on the last lap overtaking the corvette um if you just go and put it into youtube and just watch the lot it would have been it's 2017 it was 17 okay um you just go and watch it i mean you know literally after 24 hours of racing these guys are separated by a coat of paint um and they are absolutely on it and it's it's, it's some of the most um inspiring stuff that um that i've ever seen on a racetrack and not just for the, what you can see in front of you at that given moment in time but for the knowledge that you know both those cars have been out there for 24 hours you know doing it all along and um yeah so you you, you can because of the quality of the drivers and because of the preparation of the cars you can always i think pretty much guarantee a, and, and also i'm afraid because of the dreaded bop the balance of performance whereby the authorities try to equalise the performance of cars across the grid. Um, you can almost guarantee that um, in LMP Pro there will be a cracking race to be had somewhere. There we go. So we're not, um, yeah, we're hoping for a very tight battle through the different categories. Um, because we're missing a few teams and a few cars, we're not necessarily an- anticipating the most memorable 24. But with any luck, this time next week, we'll be eating humble pie. Um, we shall have to wait and see. Okay, well, let's think about Le Mans more broadly. Um, I, I just want to sort of quiz you on your your knowledge of the the, the history of the race, Andrew. First held in twenty three, as you said. Um, do you have a, a sort of understanding of why it happened in the first place? I mean, it wasn't the first race at Le Mans. I mean, the French Grand Prix had been held on a track outside Le Mans. Um, God, I mean, who knows? I can't remember how long ago, but a long time before 1923, um, you know, 10 or more years before then. Um, so racing was always, um, you know, part of it back then. I don't, for my sins, I'm afraid, know exactly why they decided to um, have a crazy 24-hour race. What I do know is that... Um, W.O. Bentley, when he heard about it, um, just said, um, it's crazy. Cars aren't designed to, you know, even drive for 24 hours, let alone race for 24 hours. And it literally said, no one will finish. Um, which is why, you know, despite the fact there was one Bentley in that first race, it wasn't Bentley's Bentley. Uh, it belonged to its driver, John Duff. Um, and Bentley only went at the very last minute, um, uh, with a few spanners and that sort of thing because he sort he thought he ought to go and sort of show willing. Uh, and came away completely captivated by the event. And, th- and and the next year they went back and they won it and it was a very different effort then. So, um, yeah, so I don't know why it came about, but I, what I do know is that, you know, certainly amongst those who'd been there, because in 23, Bentley was the only foreign entrant. Um, but if people went, they tended to come back because, you know, I think then as now, 
Um, there was an, and remains a, a magic about the place, despite the fact that, you know, the track has changed so much. I mean, back then, if you look at the photographs and you see the crap that's being thrown up by the cars, I mean, basically, they, were, they, they appear to be racing on a sort of dust surface. Um, and, you know, and, and actually, the reason that Bentley didn't win in 23 was a stone went through the fuel tank. Uh, and they lost lap after lap after lap. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous story. So I'll just digress briefly. So, so a stone goes through the fuel tank um, and the driver hops out um, and runs back to the pits and comes back and repairs it with some say a rubber bung. I think some people say chewing gum or something. Um, but he's, you know, he's he's pedaling around. Down, he borrows a bit. That's right. He gets back on a bicycle which he bicycles around the circuit the wrong way with the race traffic coming the other way to go back and repair the petrol tank of his car. Somehow gets it back to the um, back to the pits where they repair it properly, get it back out to the race, and they smash the lap record, but too much time has been lost, and I think they came fifth in the end. And that's kind of, you know, that was the first ever Le Mans, and, and those sort of silly stories have been happening there ever since. Yeah, okay, all right. Okay, so we're, we're going to leap well ahead of ourselves now, um, into the early 2000s or maybe even the late 90s you'll have to uh, put me right on that um just for a brief moment because you've mentioned bentley and ridiculous stories um so can you remind us of the the bentley prototype that had um uh, water leaking into it somehow yeah so this was uh this was 2001 so um so how, I'm just trying to remember how it all worked out because I've actually uh, not really um, thought about this for a while. But anyway, so yeah, so Bentley decides to go racing in 2000 and they create this prototype, which is not based on an Audi R8, despite what everybody else says. Um, it was um, it was designed and engineered by Race Technology Norfolk, who had done a version of the Audi R8, but I won't get sidelined into that. Anyway, um, they the, the car did have an Audi engine. Um, and nobody denies that. Um, but for various reasons, Audi didn't get an engine to Bentley until March of 2001 with a race in June. So the car being developed with an old Ford DFR engine in it, um, which wasn't ideal, but you know at least they managed to get running time on the chassis. Um, so anyway, the new engine goes in, it doesn't have much development, and, and, and Bentley don't really have much um, hope of doing very well. The, the, the unstated aim was that they get one car home in the top 10. And the one thing they'd done basically none of at all, because they just hadn't had the weather, um, was wet running. Um, and they were on Dunlop tyres, everybody else was on Michelins, um, and, you know, they hadn't developed a wet for it or, or anything. I mean, they had wets, but they didn't know whether they would work, and on and on and on. And then the race comes, and um, it gets absolute. it absolutely chucks it down. Um, and the sort of lead car driven by Guy Smith, uh, who we've already mentioned, and uh, Martin Brundle is doing really, really well. But Guy is in the car and water is getting in. And suddenly he finds himself stuck out at Arnage, I think, stuck in fourth gear. And he can't get the car through the corner because the gearbox actuator has been completely drenched. Its electronics are soaked. Um, and very sadly, that's the end of that car's race. Um and then, you know, the, the, the big problem is that they know then it's only a matter of time before um, it happens to the other car. Um, and sure enough, uh, the other car starts to misfire. Uh, and then, so not to misfire, then it gets stuck in gear. But it's stuck in a lower gear. I think it got stuck in second or third, which is the only reason it managed to get back to the pits. Um, 
And they discover that what is happening is rain is being force-fed onto this gearbox actuator. So it wasn't the gearbox itself. It was something which tells the gearbox to change gear, um, which relays the instruction from the paddle to the gearbox itself. Um, and what they needed was something which was durable and soft and flexible, which would fit in that precise hole to stop the water getting in. And somebody came up literally with the top of a bottle of mineral water. And they jammed that in, and the car then ran faultlessly for the rest of the race and came third. Um, I was because I was writing a book about them at the time I was in the pits and it was absolute pandemonium because as, as I said they you know their fondest hope was one car in the top 10 and despite the fact that you know they'd done no wet running they didn't have a wet tire they knew it would work the, the the fact that the lead car had already gone out um, that somehow this other car would get home and get home on the podium um, I mean, I was there when they won it in 2003 and, you know, they, everybody was very happy, job well done. But compared to 2001, you know, I've never seen more grown men cry um, than there were in the back of the Bentley pit when that car came over the line. It was an absolute, you know, I, I, I find myself getting quite emotional thinking about it now because um, it was a simply extraordinary moment. And I, and I feel privileged to have been there to see it. There we go. That's why Le Mans is so, so captivating, isn't it? Stories like that. And what it means to the people involved. Um, yeah, it's been going on for almost 100 years, all that stuff. It's, it, it's great. I love it. Um, okay, well, that was a bit of a, a sort of digression there. We were talking about the very early days of the race. And it was, it was and I suppose it is still known as the Grand Prix of Endurance. Um, and, and you mentioned that W.A. Bentley thought it was madness and that no car would ever manage to race for that period of time. And I, th- I think it's, it's interesting to reflect on that now, isn't it? Because Le Mans, as a, as a race over those almost a century, um, it must have played a huge role in racing cars and road-going motor vehicles becoming much, much more durable. You know, that one race must have had a huge impact on the global automotive sector um, in that respect, yeah. don't you think? No. I, th- I, th- I think so. And particularly when you consider that, you know, right up to, you know, into the 1950s, um, the cars would not only go there and do the 24 hour race, but they'd usually be driven there, you know, by road from the factory. You know, the Jaguars would leave Brown Lane, Brown's Lane. They'd toddle off to Lamore, win it and drive home again. And if you think of the, you know, the stresses and the strains um, and, and the, as you say, the stuff that they learnt um, and how to fix things. And yes, I think it's, I think it is. And, and to be fair, other endurance races, because, you know, as, as we know, um, there is Daytona um, and there's Sebring, which is only 12 hours. But because of the nature of the airfield that um, they run on it at Sebring, you know, the people will tell you that in terms of stress and strain and both car and driver, 12, anything that will su- survive 12 hours at Sebring will survive 24 hours anywhere else. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and, and I think that there are, you know, maybe we'll look at the reasons why car manufacturers go and do races like uh, Le Mans. And clearly there are mainly commercial considerations but i think yeah probably i think there are lessons to be learned and I, and, and i think probably particularly back in the days where um you know you didn't have you know pure prototypes where you know even cars that won um had to be at least technically um road legal um and i'm sure that there were absolutely um you know back when cars were not as evolved and the learning curve was a lot steeper than it is now all sorts of things they could have learned about durability from running the mm. cars okay so the, the winning car this weekend will cover more and actually significantly more than 3000 miles um at race speed and it's it's sprint race speed as well isn't it 
Um, it is these days, yeah. So when, when do you think that, that switchover happened? When did they really start going flat out for the full duration? Very good question. <laughs> I don't know, but I would think it would probably have been, it would probably have come with the Group C era. Um, you know, Group C cars, Group C started in 1982. And because the cars, I mean, basically they were flying inverted wings, so they had full body ground effect. Um, and in speed terms, they were a different league to everything else they came for, but also in terms of the forces that they were putting through the cars. You know, the cars had to be strong. I mean, really properly strong, literally to withstand the force of their own aerodynamics. Um, and if you talk to people who drove those early Group C cars, which, you know, back then didn't have, um, you know, even power steering, let alone air conditioning, um, you know, they were massively physical things. And I think those cars had to be so strong simply to be quick under the regulations. And I think that meant you could just muller them. Um, you know, some Group C cars were more reliable than others. I mean, I think something like a well, uh, maintain well-prepared Porsche 962 you could probably drive it pretty close to flat out but I think the I, I think probably the era when you literally drove flat out where you would do you would drive the car as fast as you possibly can for as long as you could possibly drive it probably started about 20 years ago so very late 90s with things like the um, Porsche GT1 98 the, and the Audi R8 and you know that's when you started to see levels of total dominance because also you know they, they figured stuff out that they figured that even if the car broke um, you remember the back end of the Audi R8 um, if they had a gearbox problem they'd literally just they wouldn't change the gearbox they'd literally just change the entire back of the car so the gearbox would come off and the rear suspension could come off and and everything else and they could change the literally the entire everything on the car after the engine they could change in about four minutes and they just had entire assemblies there so you know and and they and sometimes they'd be leading the races by so far they'd do it as a precautionary measure they think to themselves, well, this car's been out there for 22 hours. We don't want it going fat on the last lap. So, you know, we'll just change the entire back end of the car. And they go and bolt on another unit and off they go. And effectively, you know, 30% of the car will be brand new. So I think for the last 20 years, yeah, I mean, certainly among the prototypes, um, cars have just been running as fast as, as, fast as the, their drivers could drive them. What staggers me, um, we're going to leap around a little bit here, but what, what amazes me is that for a long time, um, cars were driven by just they were shared by just two drivers um, and you know not when it was uh, you know when cars were pootling around but you know I think throughout the 60s um, when they were hammering around in uh, in full GTs and whatever else often with just two drivers and not not just in the 60s in the 80s you know you look at you know the more 1980 back to that early group C era those cars were driven by two drivers and I can remember talking to so Derek Bell and Jackie X won Le Mans in 1982 in a Group C Porsche 956 no power steering no air conditioning I mean they probably they would have been physically fit people um, and they probably watched what they eat but they wouldn't have had anything like the backup that a modern race team has got um, and you know they could have had a third driver and it would have been easier for them but for them, um, the safest way to do the race was to not have a third driver because they knew they had such a great relationship. They trusted each other and they were such amazing drivers. They couldn't see any way that a third driver could do anything other than weaken the team. So they didn't have one. And so they just they just toughed it out. And they must have been so strong. I mean, I have 
Um, sorry, I'm going to show <laughs> Go it. on. Um, no, but I mean, I've, I've driven those cars, uh, yeah, but not at, you know, proper, you know, full-out race speed for, you know, a, an entire stint, let alone two entire stints or three or whatever they did, but maybe for 20 minutes. And you come out and you're completely knackered and your forearms are packed up and your neck's packed up and, you know, you want to go and have a lie down. Um, and these guys did it for 24 hours, you know, in day and night, in rain and shine with all those other idiots around them, around, you know, frankly, a pretty dangerous circuit. I, I have nothing, I have unlimited admiration for the people um, who, who, who did that. I mean, just incredible. Mm. <laughs> God, it's staggering, isn't it? Um Right, so you I, I, you've been going to Le Mans um, just about every year since when the late eighties. Yeah, I did. I did stop. I had a break um, in the sort of two thousands. Uh, I can I can remember vividly doing what I do, which is you know I, I love socialising with my mates and I do, but there, but there tends to come a time either late at night or early in the morning when nobody else is about, and I just go and stand in the bank and I watch racing. And I can remember standing on the bank in the pitch dark and it was back in the day when there were the race was decided between diesel audis and diesel Peugeots. um and okay when the cars are coming towards you uh in the middle of the night and all you can see are headlights you can't really see the cars but i can remember them coming past and thinking well i can't even hear them um anymore because those diesels are so quiet and i just thought what am i doing here i'm going here to watch cars that i'm not that passionate about which i can't see and i can't even hear um you know i might as well be doing so and, and so i i didn't go for a few years um and i think i started in fact i can't remember when i started again I, I started again um when porsche came back in when was it 13 14 um and i've definitely been every year since then and and up until then i'd gone every year from 88 so I've, i i first went in 88 when jaguar won it for the first time in 31 years and then i went every year until yeah sometime in the 2000s and then i stopped but yeah every year since porsche came back mm. uh, until this year yeah well there you go until this year um so you've you've been there to witness some amazing eras um some i'm sure you've seen some incredible races incredible racing but it, from throughout the almost 100 year history is there an era that you wish you could have been there for yeah, I think, well, I, yes, I mean, early 1970s, um, oh, you know, course. 1970, 1971. I mean, actually, I suspect they might have been, in one respect, quite dull races, because, you know, in certainly in 70 and 71, the only issue was ever going to be which 917 was, was going to win it, because, you know, the, the only real rival was the 512 Ferrari, and in no respect that I'm aware of was it as good a car so you know you may over one lap be able to get quite close to a 197 uh, to a 917 time but over 24 hours even if your cars were reliable um you know you you, you were never really going to come anywhere and there were so many 917s out there too so in that regard maybe they weren't as interesting as a race but as a spectacle oh my goodness I mean, can you? I mean, yeah, we've all seen the McQueen movie, and 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 we have a kind of an idea of what to watch. All those. I mean, the best bit about the McQueen movie, in my view, is that is the opening footage because that was actually obviously taken in the race in the nineteen seventy race itself um, with the solo production Porsche nine hundred eight, which they stuck cameras on, and so you're actually there for a bit actually in the race at the start and it, it, it it's one of the most exciting things i've ever seen and to be able to see that they were also so beautiful and they made such amazing noises and they were driven by my heroes 
and and the circuit was i mean you know it, it's probably not the safest place to go racing these days but back then my goodness you know no chicanes on the straight the old white house corner um very little runoff you know that was a that was a circuit for you know for proper people um and yeah i think if there's any any error at all that surely must have been it and uh, what about the 956 962 porsche era do you you've driven those cars haven't you you you, you must uh, yeah uh, you know and and and, and again I, I feel like a complete fraud because yes i have i have driven you know uh two or three 962s and i've driven a a jag uh and i've driven a group c aston um so i can say technically speaking i know what those cars like to drive of course i haven't got a bloody clue um because i haven't driven them that fast i haven't driven them that far um and it's never mattered um and i haven't usually had anybody else on the track around me or i've been on a track day where you're so much faster than everything else um you know all your problems are ahead of you where you can see them um and i've never driven oh that's not true i've driven one nine six two in the wet um which was actually terribly good i was amazed by how good it was but um but no i mean it's it's you know technically i've driven them but uh, you know i i i I don't really have an idea of what it must have been like to be out there in those conditions um back then i'm afraid but wow i mean must have been incredible um right so we've already mentioned that one of the things one of the magical things about le mans is that it just throws up these incredible moments and if you're lucky enough to be witnessing them live you just cannot believe what you're witnessing. Um, oh, I'm trying to work out where you're going with this. Okay, I've got well, an idea. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I'm right. Okay, I've got an idea in my head. Okay, um, I wasn't there, but I, re- I remember watching the race on the live feed. It was only a few years ago, um, and seeing. <laughs> I had an eye on Twitter, and some bloke called Andrew Frankel tweeted, um, "Unless anything unforeseen happens, the Toyota is going to oh, win this." Oh yes, I was right. 2016. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was. 2016 and then your following tweet a few minutes later something unforeseen happened <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah amazing yeah. Really. so you, you were there yeah i was there i saw it all yeah poor old kazooie nakajima literally i think it was the 383rd lap of what turned out to be a 384 lap race um and he stopped in front of the pits I mean, you 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 just you just could not make it up. I felt so sorry for those guys because you know Toyota had tried so hard for so long. They'd been robbed before. Um, what was the car? The amazing GT1 car from '99. That was the that was what was that? The TSO 30, I think, uh, which Brundle drove. Um, I mean, that car was unbelievable. That was a rocket ship. That should have won the more. Um, and then I think they had a puncture and I think boots and crap, something happened, uh, and didn't, but no, in 2016, th- that is the greatest motor racing, um, bit of bad luck that I have ever seen. Um, yeah, the car just came to a halt, it ran out of power. I don't think it was even classified at the end. Um, so you know, it's not, it's, you know, sometimes you can do that and you're so far everybody else that at least you come second or something. It didn't even, they, they certainly weren't on the podium. I'm not sure they were even classified in the race. Um, and it was just utterly heartbreaking. But I, I mean, even though, e- e- even despite all that, though, you know, there were one or two good things that came out of it. For instance, the sportsmanship of the Porsche team, which went and won it. Um, and 
they put out a tweet um, with a picture of the Toyota saying, you know, we are brothers on the track, brothers off the track. And it was just, and, and, and I think the Toyota crew went to the Porsche pit to com- congratulate them. And I can just think to myself, you know, imagine that sort of thing happening in Formula One. Um, and that's another reason why I love it, because I think that there is a, I think it is a sport in which genu- genuine sportsmanship which goes far beyond not running each other off the road, still exists. And it was, it was lovely to see. I mean, I can remember, I think it was Ollie Jarvis um, who got on the podium um, saying in the press conference that he didn't feel he should be there because he didn't feel that uh, in, in, in all justice, um, he felt, you know, that the Toyota should have been there instead. So, you know, it was, it was, you know there were some lovely things that came out of it. But, God, but it's, it's not... Me, it's not the 23 hours and 57 minutes of Le Mans, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not. And, you know, there's that old... Ho- I mean, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it. You know, to finish first, first, you must finish. Um, but it's, you know, you, you know people, people find that out at Le Mans more than anywhere else. And the weird thing is, you know, I, I think they're not allowed to do as much testing as they used to. But there were times, you know, not that many years ago, where, you know, a team like Peugeot or Audi, they'd do something ridiculous like, 10 24-hour tests or they do you know three back-to-back 36-hour tests and the cars would just run around like clockwork and you'd never get a problem and then you stick them at Lemoore, and despite the fact that they haven't contacted anywhere anything else and despite the fact presumably the cars are even better prepared stuff just happens you know and i'm not a great conspiracy theorist and you know and i believe things happen for for reasons but even so you know the best the best laid plans of the best prepared team sometimes they just go up in smoke for no apparent reason other than you're at some strange street circuit um in northwest france and the rules just appear to be different there mm. again it's more of the the mystery and majesty of the 25s of le mans isn't it um Okay, so what are your what are your sort of fondest memories? You've been so many times; there must be millions. You can probably hardly pick out even one. Um, but when you think, when you look back, what what stands out? I've got a few of my own, but for, what stands out for you? Well, I mean, a, f- a few. And I won't bang on relentlessly. But, you know, your first Lemoore is always going to be special, isn't it? I mean, I was terribly lucky. My first Lemoore happened to coincide with Jaguar winning it in Group C. It was also it was long enough ago that. Uh, the old pit complex was there and you could literally just go and sit as a, as, as a member of the public with, I guess you must have had some kind of grandstand ticket or something. I can't remember. But anyway, you literally just go and sit on the roof of the pits, dangle your legs over the pit lane and look directly down. And I have photographs of this um, of cars, you know, coming in for their pit stops. And that, that was a wonderful thing. I can remember, I'm not very proud of this. It's kind of sort of slightly sort of Chardonnay every moment, but uh, the race was always going to be between Jaguar uh, and Porsche. And there was the Shell Dunlop Works Porsche um, driven by Hans Stuck, Derek Bell and uh, Klaus Ludwig. And f- for reasons uh, unknown, I think most people think Ludwig just ran out of fuel. He forgot to come in, but he had said that there was a problem or whatever. I can remember the Porsche, which was looking like it was going to run away with it, um, coming into the pits on the starter motor, it having run out of fuel. And just the cheer from the crowd as the Jaguar took the lead. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, obviously we're patriotic, but I think also the context was, you know, Porsche had won that race every single year. I think they won the last six on the trot. In fact, they had from 82 to 87. They'd won every, you know, a 956 or a 962 had won every single edition of Le Mans. Um, Jaguar, you know, were the quickest car in 87, but they were fragile 
and we thought we were going to see it all over again and then suddenly this thing happens and the story of the race was the Porsche fighting back so nearly getting back uh, getting onto the lead lap the Jaguar the lead Jaguar having its own problems because its gearbox um, was hanging on by a thread and so on uh, but yeah so so that's a great memory 95 that race oh yeah um, nice um with the with with the mclarens the which mclaren was going to win race and uh yeah that night stint when jj later was in the car that won it the in a clinic car uh which wasn't technically a works entry but was certainly works backed uh which did cause some consternation amongst the customer teams at the time but there was a when it got weather got weather got really bad um and justin bell was in the harrods car and JJ started pulling him in at 17 seconds a lap. I know it's wow. a long lap, but even so. <laughs> um, and I can remember they got the Harrods car, car in and they got Justin out and they put Dad in. Um, and Derek, <laughs> who, who, yeah, Derek was so 95, so Derek would have been 54 then, my age. Derek got in there and suddenly the gap stabilised. And I can remember thinking, that's my boy. That was just a, that was just a fabulous moment. Um, Bentley will always be very special to me because I was, you know, it's the only, I mean, I stopped writing about Bentley as a journalist for three years because I was researching and writing this book. And so I actually became part of the team, um, not in any kind of hands-on way. I was just the irritating idiot at the back of the pit garage who, who wanted to, you know, stick a dictaphone under the nose of every driver who got out of a car after a stint. But, uh, you know, I so, so that, that was... That was very special for me. Um, and yeah, and also then there was, the, you know, there was also that year, and again, forgive me, I can't remember, it wasn't that long ago where you, know, you had, you not only had Porsche um, and Toyota and Audi there, you had cars that were powered by petrol and diesel, you had cars that were four wheel drive, you had cars that were rear wheel drive, you had cars. These were all hybrids, but some had hybrids with batteries. Some had no, yeah. One had a flywheel. One had supercapacitor, and you know they were they were so technically they were so fascinating. They were so different, and yet in qualifying they were um, you know going around this long circuit within about two or three seconds of each other. And I just thought it. I thought it. Yeah, you know, there were. I think there was a four cylinder car, which was a Porsche. There was a V six. There was a V eight. Every single sort of configuration of engine. Uh, hybrid system transmission you know they were all there and they were all competing at the top level and somehow despite the fantastically different directions from which they all arrived they all turned up in the same place in terms of their lap time and that was that was amazing um so yeah i love that too <laughs> well hopefully i mean not this year but in the future hopefully you'll you'll be creating many many more memories at this place um i i've got i've got a few of my own so i first went there in 2008 um i i was six months into my first job in the industry i was 21 um and i'd been sent there by the magazine i worked for performance car in a brand new corvette z06 um and i was as good as unsupervised because i just had the photographer with me max erie who's a great lad um and I remember driving down on the Friday and I'd been told that it's a bit chaotic on the roads around the circuit on the Friday. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And I remember pulling in into one of the perimeter roads and just seeing crowds of people lining the street. Um, And they were all, almost all British um, and certainly all of them completely hammered. Um, and as soon as they saw a banana yellow Corvette turned up, turn up, they all flooded the road, stood in front of it, and demanded a huge burnout. Um, 
And I, I was totally intimidated by this car. I'd never tried doing a burnout before. It's a left-hand drive thing. So, I, you know, I, I, yeah, okay, so on, on the right side of the car for the country I was in. But as far as I was concerned, it's absolutely the wrong side of the car. And Max looked at me, grabbed his camera and said, you're going to have to do it, mate. And I, I was like, <laughs> oh, no. Um, and so that, he got out and the crowd sort of parted. And I just... I don't know. I, I, you do what you do when you have to do a burnout, I suppose. But I'd never done it before. So, yeah, TC off, clutch pedal, just give it everything with your right foot, just jump off the, off the clutch and put your left foot straight onto the brake. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do. But when you've got probably maybe a thousand people looking at you and cheering you and pointing cameras at you, um, oh, my God, it's intimidating. I wasn't sure. I was so nervous. I wasn't sure I could coordinate my feet to do what they're supposed to do um but I, I, I managed it I did this big old burnout kept my right foot in much longer than I should have done and the crowd just went wild um it was it was fantastic um do you do you still have the photographs I still have the photographs yeah I th- yeah I yeah th- I, I think I think you should post them on DN I think people need to see this I have done once before actually a little while ago I, di- I did um, I did tell this story but if, if I can find I might talk to Max and if I can dig out the originals um, yeah maybe I'll do exactly that um, it, but yeah there is still in the build up to the race a slightly sort of um, feral atmosphere particularly among the Brit pack um, people have you know having far too much to drink and having a bit too much fun in their cars on the way there um, and then it was a few years later I wasn't really writing about road cars very much at that time, doing much more motorsport stuff. And one of the the things I was doing was writing uh, um, the press release updates for the Aston Martin factory squad. I think it was probably every four hours we sent one out while also doing all the social media. Um, And it's it's such a different perspective, as you've experienced with Bentley, to be a part of a team. um, Absolutely. And to have the headset on and to hear what the, the team on the pit wall is saying to the guys in the cars. Um, and you, it's such a privilege, actually, if you're into motor racing the way that we are, it's such a privilege to get that insider access to a team. Um, I think what I actually remember most is you, it's a, it's the end of a long week anyway. Um, and then, you know, Sunday morning rolls around, you haven't slept, you've maybe put your head down for 30 minutes or something, and you, you're still writing these four hour updates. And then come the end of the race, everyone's ecstatic. It's a great atmosphere particularly if the team scored a podium or something but then I just remember having to sit down and write the final press release without having slept being utterly exhausted to the point of delirium and not quite being able to think straight Um, and I was just writing press releases you know the the guys on the pit wall they don't leave for 24 hours the guys in the car some of them barely sleep Um, it's just you can see why it's the Grand Prix, Grand Prix of Endurance. It's not just the cars, it's everything. It, 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 is, it is just a great human story, isn't it? Um, the whole thing. I mean, it's so much more than, you know, cars and drivers going around the track. Um, and you, you, you are completely right. That's what I love about it. Um, and, you know, just, to, you know, even when, you know, because there's a tradition, isn't there, that the winning car goes to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, usually the weekend or two afterwards. And then, you know, just having that sort of rewind moment when you see the car, the car still there, covered in all the, you know, all, all, all the wildlife from France. And even just seeing that, and that suddenly just sort of brings back the moment. And it does so, it's magical in a way you're never going to get in a Grand Prix lasting, you know, an hour, three quarters or, or, or whatever they do, uh, where everything is always pristine. There's always, 
you know, a certain antiseptic quality to those races, which you just don't get with that with with the endurance race that is Le Mans. And obviously, also things are a lot less um, shuttered off. I mean, the the pit lane walk, which I always do with the crowds, where any, anybody um, you know on the morning of race day can just go and wander up and down the pit lane and just look at everything that's going on. I, I just love that. It's a fantastic moment, and you're in there on a throng of whatever it is, twenty thousand people. Um, you know, walking up and down the pit lane or on the track itself. Um, and I love that you get to do that sort of stuff. Um, and then at the end of the race, yeah, if you're lucky enough um, to be able to have any kind of access to teams and just see the state that people are in. Um, and, you know, for the, you know, for the drivers, yeah, it was something, I, I think these days almost all of them do have a little bit of sleep. Um, but you think for the mechanics, oh, they've been up for 24 hours. But of course, they haven't been. They've been up for far more than that. You know, they've been having late nights and early starts for a week. Um, you know, the race doesn't start until whatever it is, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you know, they got up that morning. And, you know, you, you are talking about, you know, people, you know, working on, you know, on cars that, you know, that are hot and difficult, who are absolutely clinically exhausted. Um, and yet they go about their business in such a professional way. Um and yeah, it's it it is an extraordinary spectacle to behold. Mm, it really is. Okay, we can't talk about Le Mans without also discussing Circuit de la Sarthe, the track, um, the eight and a half mile track. Um, I, I've only driven around it once, and I'll briefly tell you about that. So it must have been two thousand and fourteen. Um, and the second generation Audi R8 was brand new, and this was before the international media launch. So no one has driven it, and we've got this opportunity to drive it for one lap around the circuit. Um, I'm working for Evo magazine at the time. And I, I went down there expecting to drive the car, I think on the Friday. Um, but there was a problem. I think other guys, other journalists had been out before me. And I think it was that the, these R8 road cars were getting cracked windscreens and the ACO or whoever weren't happy with this, that they didn't want the cars going out there with cracked windscreens. So, it meant that my um, my lap out on track got delayed, um, which was frustrating. Except that it got delayed until the Saturday afternoon, forty five minutes before the start of the race. Wow! Um, so it, it was extraordinary. So in convoy with a bunch of other Audis, um, most of which were not holding back at all, I got to drive brand new Audi R eight that no no one had driven on the road before outside of Audi. Um, around Circuit de la Sarthe with quarter of a million people looking on. Good uh, God. It was, it was an extraordinary thing to do. And so, so sort of overwhelming with the, the occasion and the, the location that it was one of those, you know, did the lap and it seemed to go by in a flash, drove into the pit lane afterwards and just didn't remember a single thing about it. Yeah. Be- because you were just soaking up the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. And yeah well, good, and on was, good on it was, you. Good on you. It was so overwhelming. You know, it was brilliant. Um, what I do, what I do remember. So I'd never been around the circuit before. I haven't been around since. I, I just wasn't familiar with it. Um, and what I do remember is, you know, we came out of the pit lane on the start finish straight, and then did a couple of corners up and down a little bit, and then I was on this really long arrow straight bit of tarmac, and I was like, oh my god, this is the Mulsan, and I had no clue that it was so near the start of the lap. Um, it was, yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. But we have to talk about the circuit. I know you've uh, you've raced there at the classic. Um, to, just describe the circuit because I know the drivers absolutely adore the place. Uh, it, it, it's, I mean, if there is another circuit like it anywhere in the world, I certainly haven't been there. Um, 
what is so remarkable about it and you know we have to remember the circuit is so much slower now than it used to be is that despite that it is such a fast circuit you are wide open for so long it makes spa feel like a go-kart track and i say that you know while at the same time saying that spa is my favorite racetrack um but it's so quick uh and the speeds are so high you you do require complete mental recalibration to to drive fast around there and that's only in the sort of you know the not particularly fast historic race cars or or one or two modern road cars that i've driven around there what i haven't done is driven a you know group c car or something properly quick around there at race speed i mean that just just be absolutely unimaginable um but also it, it has a certain character it's got a bit of elevation not a huge amount but what it does have is the character of the circuit is all really fast corners going into slow corners um you know if you think about going through you know the the curve at the end of the pit straight and then straight into the dunlop chicane or if you think about uh the fact that porsche curves just just get that little bit slower as you go as you progress through them or particularly indianapolis um where you have this epic right hand turn followed by a 90 degree left um and you know that is the character of the circuit and those to me are the most challenging combinations of corners because what you're asking cars to do um is you know is slow down when they're going really really fast um and change from traveling in one direction to to to, to the other direction and uh when i first drove anything there i was really intimidated by that i think because i was in a short wheelbase 911 which was quite interesting in those sorts of um in that sort of environment in that sort of environment but um after a bit you just learn to absolutely love it and all i can tell you is that one of the best things i've ever done in my entire life is uh one of the more classic you at the classic if you haven't been they send you out in sort of eras so you know pre-war cars will race and then 50s cars will race and then 60s cars will race and and you do like an hour a one-hour race i think it is and then they send the next lot out and so you know you may be racing and, and it runs over 24 hours and so you will tend to get a race in the day and in the night and i can remember at about two in the morning in something rather lovely um coming out of mulsanne um and the run from mulsanne down to arnage is although they flatten it out a bit it is still pretty much the same as it's always been that is the most original part of the circuit and the circuit is is actually as fast there as it is down the main straight now um because of the chicanes um but instead of just being straight it's got some kinks in it which at the same time go over crests and so you're going over these blind crests you know cornering quite hard on a bit of the original circuit the original lamore circuit and if you're lucky enough to be in something um you know very lovely you're just thinking you can barely believe you're out there doing it you just feel so lucky and so privileged to have that experience um you know to be out at lamore at night on that track in something great i mean blimey um i you know i've i've as, as i'm sure lots of people listening to this will know i've been i've been ridiculously lucky in some of the stuff that i got to do over the last 30 odd years but i don't think i've ever felt luckier than when doing that oh wow god i'd yeah so i've done that one lap in an r8 and that is it i'd love to i'd love yeah, to have you, a go and... okay all, all i would say is that by the time i was your age i don't think i'd done anything in anything there so there 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 is time your time will come <laughs> i hope so i hope so um well there we go hopefully we've managed to capture some of the excitement and magic of the 24 Blimey, hours of uh, le mans is that the time jeez 
It's got, yeah, time's up. It's just gone. I mean, yeah, (laughs) one of the strange things about these podcasts when you're recording them is that you just sit down and you start bleating and the next thing you know, it's done. Uh, And we're all, I'm always slightly surprised by how quickly the time flies by, but this time was ridiculous. I felt, I I, I genuinely thought we'd only just got going. (laughs) I think when you get going on the 24 Hours of Le Mans, it's it's one of your subjects that you can chat about uh, and freewheel about quite happily, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I mean, we started off by putting a bit of a downer on this weekend's race, didn't we? Hopefully, um, we'll be proven wrong and it'll be a a great race. But it's better to sort of downplay it than overplay it, isn't it? I think, yeah, I think I mean, I, what I would say to everyone listening to this is, is, is do watch it, dude, because somewhere there will be a great race. It may not be in the, it may not be in P1. Uh, it may not even be in GT Pro, but, you know, um, LMP2, you know, I, I reckon there will be a proper punch up in LMP2, uh, and maybe in the AM class as well. Uh, and something unexpected will happen because it always does. And you do want to be there and watching it when it does. So despite all the doom and gloom we poured down on next weekend or this weekend, um, you know, I still think it's good. Well, I mean, I will certainly be, um, rooted to it. Um, because, you know, I, I may not be able to be there with my mates drinking beer, but at least I'll be able to, you know, see a little bit of it. Yeah. Same same um okay. can we do another one i don't, I don't know <laughs> probably not next week although i guess next week we will at least cover off the result yes, but we will, um, we will. I, I i'm not done boring people to death about lemoya i'm not even close i mean we haven't mentioned what haven't we mentioned well we haven't mentioned really any other i mean apart from you know, the 50s and 60s to, era 50s and 60s you know d types and ferraris and early Porsches. i mean gee we have got so much ground to cover so we are we are going to come back. We will do this again. We may leave it a year. We may leave it a week. Who knows? Um, but uh, we're not done here. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. And as ever, you know we have to rattle through this stuff. Please leave a rating, a really good one, and a really good review as well. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them. Um, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash drive nation. You can bung us a few quid a month there if you want to. Lots of people have already. And we're enormously grateful to all of them who, who have done so. Um, also, you, you must check us out on Instagram if you're not familiar with the, us there already at drive nation underscore. Um, and keep coming back. We'll talk to you all again next week. And Andrew, once we know uh, the outcome of this race, we'll have another conversation. I uh, look forward to it, mate. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. Uh, catch up with you this time next week. Goodbye. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.